Welcome everyone to Equals. This is Nabil. Hi everyone, this is Nadia. And look, we've been talking about the cost of living crisis this season, right? That's the theme for season five of Equals, but we're sidestepping for a bit to do an Equals episode, which is, it's a bit different, right? It hits deep. We're going to be talking about colonialism, its legacies. It's personal, right, Nabil? Because we're actually also legacies of colonialism. It's personal indeed. We are the children of colonialism, Nadia. And we're going to be asking this question, you know, what should rich countries do to address their past crimes of colonialism and of slavery? What's their duty to poorer countries across the world? To help us answer some of those questions, we'll be talking to Professor Vereen Shepherd as a two-part special. And, you know, when we talk about global inequality, as we've done on this podcast, there's a way to talk about it, right? It goes back 10, maybe even 40 years. Well, today we're going way back. We're going to the 15th century. We're going to the creation of the colonial economic order and the slavery that divided our world in the first place. And we'll go to the place it started in the Caribbean. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're going to hear the actual story, right? Like I think Professor Shepard is going to take us there, right? Like indigenous people standing there on the beach in the 15th century, seeing these boats arriving with these white men from Europe on these boats. And we'll hear what happened. We'll hear about the resistance that ensued. But also, I mean, we're going to be hearing about how that era shaped the economic rules that we see today, shaped the economies and societies of the Caribbean today. Totally. And what a privilege it is to have Professor Vereen Shepherd on the podcast. She's a social historian, a Jamaican scholar. She's a director of the Centre for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies. She was the vice chair of the Reparation Commission that was set out by Caribbean nations. And now she's leading the UN's committee for the elimination of racial discrimination. We'll be hearing about that. Amazing. And and she's actually the host of Talking History on Nationwide 90FM. So I say let's go over to her now and, and talk some history. Let's. Professor Shepard, or I should say Vereen, actually, because we're ditching the British formalities, aren't we, today? We are. <laughs> Honestly, thank you so very much for joining us. I'm a huge fan of your work. It's about history. It's about justice, right? But I also got to say, we're so glad to have you on because I just don't think we talk enough about the Caribbean, right? And how central it is to the whole story of capitalism that we know today. So a very warm welcome to you, Vereen. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be on your show. We are so excited to have you with us. Um, Vereen, I want to get straight into it and start with, with reparations. I'm wondering, how would you introduce and explain the subject of reparations, let's say to a first year undergraduate student or, or even a whole class in, in London or in Lagos, for example? I always tell my students when I used to teach, I used to say the word reparation itself comes from a Latin word for repair. So just think about repair, repairing something. It means addressing a wrong which has been done, removing the long-term effects of that wrong or crime upon the victims and their descendants. Because in our case, the descendants are claiming on behalf of their ancestors, but also on behalf of themselves because of the legacies. Let me ask a follow-up question there is, where does this story of, 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 of repair, reparations begin? 
for the Caribbean? For the Caribbean, it begins from the moment of conquest in the 15th century. Because remember, there were people in the region before colonizers descended and upset their world. So the indigenous peoples, the Tainos, the Kalinago people, the Maya, the Aztec, they were all in our region, as they were in North America uh, and so on. So 1492, when the Columbus crew landed in the Bahamas, started that destruction, continued into the 15th and 16th centuries, and followed. that was followed by conquest by other Europeans, not just Spain, but other European countries, the British, you know, the Portuguese. So it's been a long, long history of oppression. And we're still fighting for resolution and for, uh, you know, apology and repair and settlement for that crime. Varun, I went to school in the UK. We're not taught about it at school. I can tell you about Henry VIII's six wives and everything that happened to them, but I can't tell you about um, colonial history and, and slavery. Well, so could we until a few years ago when we started to teach our own history. That's a huge story in itself. Vreen, imagine you're, you're, you're one of those indigenous people um, that you're mentioned. You know, you're, you're stood there at the shore. Um, you're seeing these boats come in from Europe. What's, if you could paint a bit of a picture to us, what's happening in that time? Because that story hasn't been told. Well, we try to tell it to our students, you know, but... When we read about, when we read accounts of the conquest, we get a picture because you get a picture of hospitable people not immediately firing off their arrows and bows, you know, because you see, remember that there was movement within the cabin and among people. So it's not as if people were living in isolation, never saw another human being from them born, you know, that kind of thing. They were used to seeing people. So they were simply curious. I imagine, and from what I've read and the stories and the accounts, people were curious. And and would in, in Jamaica, for example, they welcomed these visitors on their shore until they realized they these ain't friends. These are people who are coming to destroy our lives. And that's why the fighting, that's when the fighting and the conflict began. But these were people going about their business. They had their own civilization, their own economy, political system, social order, and they were disrupted by people who wanted to simply colonize, conquer, take them over and take over their lands. And that's what happened. Not to mention the diseases, the depopulation that, that, that happened because indigenous peoples were not used, they didn't have any resistance to some of the, the diseases brought in. And and Verena, I'm sitting here in, in the United States in, in the capital of the US in Washington, DC, and there is, you know, increasingly uh, more recognition and sort of history telling about uh, what happened with slavery in the United States. But of course, with colonization in the Caribbean, slavery is a big part of the history there as well. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that. Initially, the colonizers tried to use indigenous laborers to do their work. And uh, when that population began to decline, they began to think of other means of labor, especially 
as they they they, they initiated the plantation system, the sugar plantation system. So wherever you had cotton or sugarcane, other big plantation crops, additional laborers were sought. Europeans decided to use or enslave African laborers from the 15th century, but intensifying in the 17th century, enslaved Africans were trafficked to this part of the world, to, to the United States, to Brazil, to Cuba, to the British colonized Caribbean and other colonized spaces. So that's how we have this large population of African people spread out across the, the uh, North America and the Americas because what was introduced was not contract labor. It was, it was chattel enslavement where people were, were deemed property. Human beings were deemed property. They were chained. You know, they were shackled, put on ships in unspeakable conditions and taken to the Americas to be distributed to plantation owners and property owners who kept them in the most terrible conditions, treated them like animals, but extracted their labor to enrich their own societies. And we are suffering from that legacy today. And that's deeply and, and powerfully felt. What fascinates me about the work that you're undertaking, Varine, for reparative justice with many others is that it speaks to history and it speaks also to the struggles of people over centuries. Mm -hmm. You spoke about how those colonizers and the slave traders came, but there's also a piece here about the resistance to that, isn't there? Absolutely. And do you feel that that reparative justice work is connected to those who were resisting? And could you talk us through how those people resisted in the Caribbean in particular? Yes, I always say that the reparation movement has a long genealogy. And when I trace that genealogy, I always say every form of enslavement, every form of oppression generates an opposing struggle for liberation. So I always include indigenous peoples and enslaved Africans among those who are struggling for repatriate justice because if somebody is oppressing you, taking away your freedom, you're going to fight for liberation. So from the moment of capture, enslaved Africans fought for their freedom. So that resistance is a part of our DNA. This resistance to oppression, that, that has been our history, where outsiders have come in, colonized our space and tried to take away our, our, our respect, our dignity. And so... Indigenous peoples, enslaved Africans, every generation fought for liberation. So that is, if you're fighting for your freedom, fighting back for your land, fighting back for your rights, that's an early form of a struggle or a campaign for um, reparation. That struggle has continued. But yes, you are correct. There were so many wars of resistance in the Caribbean. And not only outright armed struggle, but day-to-day -day acts of resistance by children, by women, by young people, by men, by young men, middle-aged men, older men. And we know this because we have the lists. We have lists of enslaved 
Africans with their occupations and their ages and their, their genders so that we know who are the ones in the forefront of the struggle. So yes, resistance has been a part of our DNA and it has been a part of our history. Every type of struggle generates an opposing struggle for liberation. And Vereen, just on this one piece of history, you know, I, you know, people know the name of Christopher Columbus and we know the reasons for that. Who are the one or two names of people who, you know, who people should really learn about who resisted? Well, for the Caribbean, there's, there are so many of them. But let me, let me call Nana, Queen Nana of the Jamaican Maroons, who fought against British settlement and colonization. Let's talk about Chief Techi, the Ghanaian chief who led a war in 1760. Let's talk about Sam Sharp of Jamaica who led the final emancipation war. He was, he was hanged because of his role. Let's talk about Busa of Barbados, King Court. All these men and women, uh, Eliza Whittingham, Jane, Mary and Reed, all these are men and women who struggled for liberation. But a lot of people will know about Sam Sharp because the 1831-32 Emancipation War was a final emancipation war in the British colonized Caribbean because one year after the Emancipation uh, Act was passed. So people know about these enslaved Africans. Um, they know about Kofi, you know, Atta. And some of these names are um, familiar to African people because those names emerged over on this side as well, you know? Thank you. Thank you for those, uh, Varine. I know that I will be doing a lot of homework that continues after this interview. I want to, you know, as we think about going back to this, this concept of reparations and repairing what has been done in the past, we also see connections between what has happened in the past and what is happening today. And I wonder if you can help make these connections for us. How does that period of, of slavery, of colonialism, how did that shape what the Caribbean is today, its economies, societies? Yes. You know, I always quote from the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, which we call the DDPA. Some people may recall that in 2001, there was a world conference in Durban, South Africa. And out of that came a declaration called the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. And in trying to link the past to the present, one of the articles said, Historical injustices have undeniably contributed to the poverty, underdevelopment, marginalization, social exclusion, economic disparities, instability, and insecurity that affect many people in different parts of the world, in particular in developing countries. Now that gives you the link. That explains that the reparation movement today is not only for historical injustices, but the ways in which historical injustices have left legacies into the present. When you think of climate change, when you think of deforestation, when you, th when you think of environmental degradation, when you think of the class system that still is here, racism, 
racial profiling, anti-black racism. When you think of underdevelopment in the global south, but development in the core, in the north, all these things are undeniably the legacies of a historic wrong. So the past is connected to the present. Varine, you're very compelling when it comes to me, I'm sure for Nadia, I'm sure for, for many people, even people who might people who might not naturally be into these issues will say, yeah, this is absolutely terrible what happened in the past. It clearly links to today. But then I think of somebody, you know, who lives on, you know, where I used to live in, in, in the UK, and they'll say, yes, that shaped our world today. But then they'll also say, but why 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 does that why has that got something to do with me? Why should I be paying for mistakes made by you know my ancestors generations ago what do you say to that okay here's my question back to such a person why do you continue to live off the wealth that was generated by your ancestors you see my ancestors were enslaved africans they were forcefully relocated to this part of the world where i live now in jamaica they were worked some of them to death but it's their labor that produced the rum and the sugar and other um, products. Your country benefited, extracted the wealth from my part of the world. And when, the com- when slavery was abolished, planters in Europe got compensation when enslaved people got nothing. That intergenerational wealth continues and it is manifested in development in the core. When you come to my part of the world, it is obvious that we have intergenerational transmission of poverty. That's the difference. So you can't say it's not my fault, but you take what has been generated. You have to take responsibility. When it comes to the state, we know the state continues. So even if it is not that government that was in power in 1834, doesn't matter. The, in the case of Britain and other countries, and we can name out all of them, the wealth is there. And think of this. Britain earned five million pounds per year from sugar during the peak of the industry. And over a century alone made 500 million equal to over 2.5 trillion today. And then 46,000 enslavers compensated. So it's a lot of money. And when I, the first time I went to the UK, I said, wow, look at how developed this country is. And look, how, look, how, look, look at my country. At the time of independence, we are celebrating 60 years of independence very soon in Jamaica, next week, the 6th of August. When our leaders asked for reparation, they were denied. So the debt continues and it is adding up. One of the other counter arguments we hear, and it is Mm -hmm. an interesting one, Mm -hmm. is, okay, you've had 60 years of independence. Yes. You've had 60 years to get it right. Mm -hmm. You know, the the British government is no no longer ruling over there. Yes, they Um, are. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say to that, that the independence has provided the opportunity for many developing countries to be able to make their way out of, um, of, of poverty um, and the challenges they face, and still that hasn't happened. What's your response to that one, Vereen? It's one argument, and I've heard it over and over. But think of that. If you begin your, your independence with a deficit, 
right? And over the years, instead of getting um, real investment, what you get are people still extracting your resources for little or no money. And when you ask for more money for your bauxite or whatever is the resource, they go somewhere else where labor is cheaper. So you start with a deficit and you continue in a situation where you're not equal with your part trading partners because we still have a system where there is a global north and a global south. And if you think of the deficit alone, and remember what I said, no positive answer to the requirement for money to start our independence in 1962 in the case of Jamaica and Britain. And then you are told, go and develop. Your population is growing. The infrastructure is challenged. Not enough schools, not enough hospitals, not enough of the physical infrastructure. And you're going to say you should have gone further on? No, no. The, the debt is still outstanding. There was unpaid labor to the tune of four trillion pounds. Labor cost four trillion. Benefited the British economy. All of that can be calculated and is being calculated, even though it's not a cash payout that people are demanding as reparatory justice. You can't ask to go and develop when you didn't get a leg up at all. That's not equity. In true kind of Netflix season style there, Nadia, there's cliffhanger stuff. <laughs> it really was. And I know our listeners are on the edge of their seats. Um, I know I am, but we're actually going to pause it right there um, because we have part two coming up and it's equally exciting. But today we talked about the history uh, of colonialism in, in the Caribbean and why there is this movement and call for reparations. And in the next episode, we're going to hear more about the how. Varane's going to talk us through, you know, what reparations could practically look like. We're going to ask questions like, you know, is aid a form of reparations and so much more. Yes, and we'll be speaking again to Professor Shepard. We'll also welcome Grieve Chalwa, Dr. Grieve Chalwa, back onto the podcast. He's a former star of Equals. Um, <laughs> he's a brilliant Zambian scholar. And we'll get an inside track on the work in Africa on this issue of reparations. Exciting, exciting. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed it, folks. Do look out for part two. Bye. Thanks, everyone.